Hi everyone, it's Brian, and I have two quick things to tell you about before we jump into today's episode. First, if you've recently lost your job as a result of COVID-19, I want to try to help. If you need a resume review, an introduction to one of my connections on LinkedIn, or you have another question, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. There's no charge for this, I just wanna be helpful. You can reach me via email at brian, B-R-I-A-N, at designingforanalytics.com, or on Twitter, at Rhythm Spice. And secondly, as of this recording, some cities and towns in the US in particular are beginning to reopen slowly. If this is the case where you live, I really hope you'll exercise caution, stay safe, and keep in mind that we can all be infected and spread the disease even if we feel fine. Many of our healthcare workers are understandably exhausted, frustrated, and overworked. And since they're always committed to being there for us when we need them, our job is to try to avoid needing them at all. My best to you, your family, and your business as we work through this pandemic. Thanks. You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. Uh, Today, we have a special edition of the show. Uh, I think uh, I've told listeners before, um, I have a background in music originally, and I'm a professional musician as well as my consulting work. And so whenever I have the chance to do a music and data or music and analytics oriented uh, episode, uh, I always jump on those because they're super fun for me. And I think it's just a fun topic that everyone can, can kind of enjoy from an entertainment perspective, but also from a learning perspective. So uh, today, I'm happy to have Rasti Turek on the line, who's the CEO of PEX. Hey, Rasti, how's it going? Good. Thank you for having me. Excellent. What the heck is PEX? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we it's call not the it... candy thing, right? With the little head that flips out, you know? That's PEZ. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, PEX is a Czech word, uh, uh, PEXASO, which stands for Pickleness Associate. It's an acronym. Um, Mm-hmm. And the word uh, is the memory game or game of memory as it's known in English. Uh-huh. And uh, our name stands from the idea of what we are doing. So we can identify two pieces of content against each other. And the game is based on the fact that you're flipping two images that are on their, uh, on their side or essentially on their face. And so you don't see which images and they have to identify the same. Mm-hmm. So that was the origin of this. The problem of the name is that... Um, most Americans cannot pronounce it. And so after nine months of negotiations with the original uh, owner of the pex.com, we were able to acquire the domain and uh, shorten our name. Cool, cool. So tell me about what Pex does and our our listeners. You're in the music analytics and rights management, but what does that mean to someone who doesn't really work in in the music business? Well, uh, we call it Google for uh, uh, audiovisual content. Um, in, in reality, we kind of work the same way. So our services crawl the internet for audiovisual content, index it, and it's able to search through it. And then we expose that to our customers, which are usually rights holders, on both the uh, digital rights management, meaning we identify content that was... Uh, shared without their permissions uh, or without the licenses and or we help them to understand 
the general, what is called UGC, user-generated uh, content world of YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and many others. So the when you talk about rights management then here, are we talking about, so in the music world, you know, we have what's called the song or the, the IP, right? So this is mm -hmm. like, let it be by the, the Beatles, right? But I can go and record, let it be on my own record. And that's my recording of that song is called a master. Mm -hmm. So are you searching all the masters and helping pe the, the rights owners of recordings? Or are you helping the composers that actually wrote the, the songs? Like who, who's your customer yeah. in that sense? We actually do both. So we are able to technically identify four distinguished copyrights. So there is five mm -hmm. text, images, video, sound recording, composition. We can do four or five. So we do everything but text. Okay. Um, and so we are able to separately identify melody, which is essentially what comes from the composer or the writer and separately identify uh, the sound recordings. And so by these, we are able to serve both the labels and the publishers, or essentially that kind of side of the world. And, uh, you know, the technology is built to deal with a lot of distortions. So when people re-record uh, songs in a different style, so for instance, you know, you, you do a piano version of something that was done in the guitar, or uh, you have a cappella or something similar, our systems are able to connect these dots between each other. And so that's on the music side. On the video side, also we deal with a lot of different distortions, like uh, horizontally swapped images and uh, cropped and a lot of other things. And uh, we are able to identify somewhere from uh, one second of a content. So, you know, fairly short, uh, fairly short segments. And this allows us to identify also mixes and remixes. So when people mush together multiple songs, or when they are uh, making a longer set of songs, uh, we are pretty good at that too. Got it. So tell us, I'm curious with, you know, without getting too into the, the technical details here, but how does, how does the technology work in terms of um, identifying, say that, you know, the song, right? The, the copyright and the mm -hmm. actual intellectual property of the song. I assume you're using machine learning for this, but I would, I would think it would take a lot of versions of the same song before you could identify the song. Is that correct? Or that's not really uh, the approach that you took to, to actually identify these recordings? Actually, uh, you, you, so the system is very flexible. So uh, where it's maybe easier to demonstrate this or illustrate this is that there is um, uh, in video where essentially we can use a camera recorded version from cinema and then identify any other subsequent version of it, so it be DVD, Blu-ray, uh, a lot of di other distortion. And so the quality doesn't necessarily matter for the system and something similar happens to the, uh, to, or is applies to the audio. And so, and this is achieved through something that is called perceptual hashing. Um, it's a very like, concrete type of mathematical formula that essentially looks for uh, perceptual uh, changes rather than changes of uh, of a content, meaning like the mathematical. So as you know, everything is a zeros and ones in computers. So what is a change to a computer is not necessarily a change to a person. So there are these things called codecs that allow different forms of compression of, uh, of a content to computer. These things are inherently different. To humans, they are not. And so perceptual hashing exists to make... Uh, uh, teach computers about differences that humans perceive rather than the other way around. And so 
we utilize these tech, these kind of concept of perceptual hashing, and then we build at top of that internally our own algorithms that uh, are correctly identify as a machine learning, not necessarily deep learning. So these are not what uh, is currently called AI. These are uh, what the what the industry calls signal processing. And so there are formulas that essentially allow uh, our algorithms to identify changes that humans will perceive and through these changes is able to identify the content. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of distortions that can come in, like sped up, slow down, high pitch, low pitch, and a lot of other things within music. And um, and this is what the, what the perceptual algorithms are built around. So the idea is, and this is why we are able to deal with, or identify things that are uh, when they change instruments or when, for instance, someone whistles. Uh, the melody, because the algorithm is not looking for is there a difference between uh, between those two files, particular files, but what it's looking for is uh, is there a difference between the logic of them, the way that a human's ear will approach this. And so this is kind of understood sector, I will say. Uh, most things started in the 60s. Um, uh, the first Significant companies out of Yamaha came like uh, 90s, Shazam is 2000. So there's a lot of these companies that operate in this field for 20 to 30 years. Uh, we just took it a little bit further. We adjusted it towards uh, the UGC world. And uh, we focused on simplicity and uh, the operational proudness. So that means, uh, you know, there is a difference when you have 60 million songs and you're trying to identify those and as uh, as we have 20 billion videos and you're trying to identify those because the difference between the song and video is quite significant, especially on the audio side, where normal video, like if you go out and you share recording on your phone, there will be thousands of different sounds coming in, while song is built around the fact that it's shielded from every other uh, interference. And so you have these very narrow sounds within and so songs are significantly easier than for instance videos that are from the from the normal world and so we had to adjust to those and we did i will say pretty good job over the last six years yeah it, it, i would i would think it's i would think it's quite good at identifying master recording use right like someone else's recording being played in the background of a video i i I, is it safe to assume that the platforms more the analytics are more accurate on identifying that than it is on identifying say you know a cover version of someone else's song or it's about equal in terms of the uh, the accuracy it's a slightly less on the cover versions mostly because we have like we are running in troubles for instance we have as a test case a regular version of Beatles song uh-huh. which you will as a person, be able to identify quite easily. Right. Computer is not because uh, you, what you are listening to is not the melody. You're listening to the lyrics. You're listening to all of these things, while the computer is really narrow. And so, right. computers are these expert uh, systems rather than they are these you know general system like humans are. And so, this is the kind of the uh, discussion between AGI uh, versus AI or narrow AI. And so, this is kind of the same thing for us. So. The cover versions are a little bit slightly um, uh, less on the identification side, but the, at, the, at the current world, we're able to still identify around 70 to 80%. And um, that's usually good enough when you are talking about uh, eight, 20 billion videos and songs 
be uh, that are uploaded uh, to the internet today with uh, additional 50 million being uploaded every single day and so you know at the end of the day the quantity always trumps the quality uh, when it comes to the massive scale like this right right so uh, let me I'm going to just summarize uh, what I think the the customer and the use cases are here and then we can kind of jump into what some of those are because I'm, I'm curious to understand how how the end users actually you know, perceive your analytics, how they use them, how did you decide what to present? So, so in short, if I'm the reason I would buy PEX or subscribe to, to PEX if I'm a user is I'm a publisher probably. I'm I'm in charge of monetizing an artist's catalog, right? So they've got 10 CDs out, you know, a hundred songs, and that artist isn't spending all day chasing down every YouTube and trying to monetize someone used my song and I need to monetize that. that that's really the job of the publisher to, to do placements and, you know, whatever commercials on TV and this kind of thing. Right. So, so the question is when there's user generated content is it's really hard to keep up with all the usages of quote my song. And so my publisher, if I'm the artist, they're the person that's going to use PEX to go out and figure out, like where digitally you guys are tracking, where are all uh, all of my copyrights being used that I don't know about? And then I have the option, I guess, to either monetize or request takedown or like, what's the use, what's the business value there? Is, is it the ability to monetize it immediately or to take it down or to do something else? Like, what would I do as a publisher in that case? Well, that depends on the platform. So some uh -huh. platforms allow additional monetization, some platforms don't. Um, what is a pretty big use case in general is also uh, general licensing. Mm -hmm. And so it's not necessarily you as a singular composer or singular artist. Mm -hmm. The publisher represents a lot of them. Right. And so mushing them into a bucket, we can tell them what's, the, what's their kind of makeup of the platform. So this is your catalog against this platform. You represent, let's say, 14% of all... Uh, traffic to that platform and then the publisher goes to the platform and says like look I mean I can remove all my content that's my legal right or we can find a way how to financially benefit both and so this is uh, more and more popular this is also a thing that um, is happening now in Europe so Europe passed a new law uh, middle of last year called copyright directive uh, more specifically article 17 which uh, changes the paradigm how uh, UGC platforms operate. So under DMCA, Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the United States, they get something called Safe Harbor, which essentially allows them to have any content they want without any legal uh, ramifications. The copyright directive is changing these 180 degrees, saying from now on, you have to have license to 100% of your content. And so this is where our technology plays uh, uh, can help out the, the platforms um, right. with identification, licenses, and other things. But uh, there's always a kind of a point of analytics and uh, inherent action. So, you know, a lot of uh, creators, rights holders, uh, don't want their content in certain settings. So, for instance, Disney doesn't want to have their content on adult platforms or... You know, there is a lot of these kind of decisions that artists go through themselves. For instance, a lot of musicians don't want to have their content uh, to be or their songs to be played in certain podcasts that are maybe, you know, uh, in certain teams that are political or others. And so you, we give them control over these decisions uh, and then they make 
the further decisions based on data that we surface. Got it. Got it. So the would you would you qualify it as then the the analytics are are largely providing a form of decision support, like ammunition to go in and have a conversation with a large platform and say, you know, we know what's going on. We know where our catalog's being used. We know what that's worth to you. Is that the the kind of the value PEX provides? And then they go and have a separate conversation about how to do a deal, you know, to formalize that. We definitely facilitate those. Um, there is so much more. Our analytics is uh, much wider. And so mm-hmm. this is one of the use cases. We have plenty of others. And it really depends on their uh, interest at the time. And so what we tend to see a lot is repeated business with the with most of the rights holders because they realize that we can support, you know, from a basic level when you are doing a promo for a certain song or a certain album or a certain video up to the ladder of a whole platform or categories. So for instance, which podcasts are uh, booming these days and what kind of uh, music is being used and what gaming content is uh, being popular and a lot of other stuff that essentially correlates with this. And so the analytics is uh, not only wider, but is much deeper. And it really depends on the, on the creator and, uh, and their interest at the time. But we tend to cover most of the holes mm-hmm. over a you know, few months once they realize what we can do. So I, I would assume you you probably have a, a a hand you know a small a small number of publishers who represent giant catalogs and then maybe a long tail of of people with you know small to medium sized catalogs is that a safe assumption or uh, we currently work mostly with the large ones um, uh-huh. uh, through trade organizations and groups we give access to the small ones too and uh, we are hoping to open up more widely within a few months. Uh-huh. But uh, for now, uh, the the largest uh, rights holders are essentially our current customers. Got it. So how do you how did you go about designing like deciding? Okay, you log into PEX. I, I I'm a large I work I'm a publisher for a large publishing company. I have a, I have a really large catalog. What do I need to see? And how did you guys decide what information to present? You know what what gets priority in that experience? How how do you make it? How do you make sure that the analytics aren't overwhelming and it's not just like, you know, here's every placement everywhere in the world and what time it happened at, because that's probably overwhelming. So tell me about your kind of process of figuring out how to make all of this stuff digestible when there's so much user generated content uh, being produced all the time. Uh, well, what is funny, so we, we uh, middle of February, uh, we just passed six years uh, uh-huh. as a company. Mm-hmm. And uh, last year, we had a large on-site in uh, our headquarters in Los Angeles where all of our employees flew in. And um, I fished out the wireframes that I put together uh, sometimes uh, before the company was established. And uh, the, the current system looks almost exactly like the original wireframes. And so I will say we got quite lucky with, uh, with the thinking there. But... Uh, we, in fact, surface every single identification, so tens of millions, hundreds of millions of them to every single rights order. What we build around that is this very advanced filtering where they are able to narrow down based on a series of maybe 50 filters uh, what they want to really see at this point and then build tools around that to take an action from the system. And so... Rather than going after um, summaries, we went with the specifics because 
what differentiates us from a lot of other competitors is there's a lot of analytical companies that uh, do very similar things than uh, one of the most famous is Nielsen, where they do a lot of extrapolation. So they have few sensors within the population, what they call people meters, and then based on those, they will uh, generate the, the essentially whole population markup. What we do is the complete opposite. We see every single piece of content on the internet or almost every single piece of content. And because of that, we don't have to extrapolate anything, but that also puts us in a place where any summarization becomes very tricky because now um, there are uh, extremes, right? And so what we decided to go with is to give the raw data with a lot of tools to help them to summarize them the way that they want flexibly. And this was quite successful for us because um, A, our capabilities are very hard to replicate within other companies. So we were uh, able to uh, operate for the last six years unimposed uh, with any significant competitor. But B, it also helped the right sorters to realize what kind of data is out there and what the capabilities and possibilities are. And so this is within the DRM. And then for the analytics, what we did is we spent three years um, building these POCs um, with a lot of different customers. So we went from rights orders to brands through uh, aid agencies and a lot of different companies that essentially touch in some form or shape audiovisual content. And then we produce these uh, reports for them to see how they react. And as the time went and as we learned more and more and we saw how to utilize these, we were able to figure out what matters and what doesn't and build this and productize this into a system that is just becoming public now. So we spent almost three years uh, in a more like a physical A-B test world rather than uh, putting something out and hoping for the best. So can you tell us about some of the things that maybe you learned about the, the different versions that, so I would, you know, I would call those like prototypes uh, effectively. So you had multiple prototypes, you got, you know, user feedback on them. Were there any, like, is there a particular story or a, an aspect of the design that you maybe you like, wow, we never would have thought to do that. But now that we, you know, showed them some different versions, like they, they brought back some, some surprising feedback for us and it changed our trajectory. Did you have any learnings like that you can think of? Yeah, there's a couple. So one of the big ones is that we only see content. We don't see usage. That means we don't follow users. We follow content. And so mm -hmm. uh, at some point, we were exploring if we call Moosh uh, usage data to our own system. And there are other providers that essentially uh, kind of sneakily follow users. And we thought this will be an interesting uh, addition to our system. And as we explored this more, we started noticing that the um, recipients started making incorrect decisions because they were biased towards users. So they had some idea uh, about who their customer is. And once they saw the customer, they started becoming immediately biased towards it. So one of my favorite stories is unrelated to us, but it's essentially uh, this is a fishing rod company in 70s or 60s and 70s uh, was trying to advertise for men and someone suggested a woman magazine and uh, essentially all of the executives said that's stupid because women don't buy fishing rods but the reality is women bought them for the men right and so they became one of the most successful companies because they were advertising in a places that 
others didn't. And so this is kind of similar. We see this a lot. Like once there is a user exposed, the bias immediately kicks in. So for instance, if you think that your uh, general customer is a coastal elite, but the reality is that they are Midwest uh, farmers, you don't want to see that as the reality and you start being biased towards that. So we mm. immediately started removing the data and really focused on the content itself because then that content is not biased. Content has a usage and that usage is whatever it is. And so that was a big learning. The other things was um, we are able to surface uh, usage through uh, approximation in a, in a form. So for instance, if you put out a video, we know what pieces of that video are being used in other pieces of content. And th that way we are able to connect back to which parts of your content are clicking which with audiences. And uh, what we are able to surface in these uh, measurements is something that most of the writers or the, the recipients don't ever expect. So it's parts that they thought, oh, but why are they interested in this? And uh, we never, you know, we don't know the answers. We just are able to show the data. And so that tends to be quite interesting. And then uh, one of the curious one is because we can seclude or separate uh, the owned channels versus, uh, versus uh, what we call editorial channels versus a true UGC. People get very surprised by how the UGC, the true UGC, meaning the person that you don't have any relationship with, reacts to the content differently than the channels that you are in control uh, control of. And so these were, these were pretty interesting learnings. Uh, the other ones is there's 400 plus platforms in the world. Most people can name maybe 10. And uh, um, most of them don't compete with each other. So we were very surprised about this. The, only big one that actually kind of tries to go after all of the content is YouTube. But every other platform outside of that is very narrow, very specific, and only certain type of content and certain message works there. And uh, we were very surprised to see such a divided world be geographically. So there are platforms that are, for instance, Russian or Chinese, be it uh, language or be it type of content. And um, this information, when it comes to the uh, the recipients be again like it can be a right sort it can be a creator or aid agency tends to be shocking because again most people cannot name more than ten platforms. Got it. Got it. What one of the I wanted to challenge you on one thing you said here. So in, in my experience, you know, working on decision decision support applications and analytics solutions, you know, t typically speaking, when you're dealing with really large data sets like this, and like in, in your case, the the customer's data being uh, placements or usages of their copyrighted material in user-generated content, simply displaying every single record like in a table or something like that can be pretty daunting in terms of figuring out what do I do with this data, unless I'm simply taking an export and then I bring it into another system that's going to then do some kind of analysis on it. So how do you balance the flexibility that that provides with the potential complexity, the, the, the need for the user to figure out what do I do with it? You know, if I log in on Monday and there's 52,000 new placements of the hit single that my artist dropped last week all over the world, you know, all over the place, it, does that put a tax on them in terms of the, the amount of effort required for them to, to take the next step? Or how, how do you balance those two things? What is interesting is like there is uh, like it's always so we always start with the uh, guiding principles. 
what is the task that you are trying to solve? So for instance, if your task is to monetize your content, then obviously you want to monetize the most obvious content that will get the most views, right? Like that's how monetization works on, at least on YouTube and a few other platforms. More views generates more ad views, more ad views generates more money. So the task for that, for that particular person is, I want to identify any content that has the most potential to earn me the most money. And so we build a lot of these algorithms internally that essentially surface or try to predict the future. Obviously that is not possible, but there is some simple ways how to use velocity of the, uh, from the past and extrapolate into the future and a few other things. And so we offer these priority filters. We offer these other things. The other interesting thing is we started hiding a lot of information from the customers. So for instance, Historically, we always surfaced views and engagement counts and a lot of these other things. And we realized that people, again, because that's, that's what we as a human do, we get biased. And so people will immediately start looking at these numbers and start using them. So if there's a video that we identified that has already a million views, you will never get paid for that because the million views is gone. But people somehow instinctively go to that and say, this is the largest number. That's the number I have to operate on. But there is a new video that was uploaded three, three minutes ago. And in three minutes, it got 4,000 views. It has much higher probability gaining the next million than the one that already has a million. And so we started hiding a lot of information from people. We started uh, putting them in, in, a, in a kind of a ways or scopes where they are very forced to take a certain action. And so all of our design reflect uh, the usefulness of what they're supposed to surface. So uh, a customer that is trying to learn about the general overview of the platform is not necessarily bothered about a single video so they don't have to see that. While a customer that is trying to take an action on very particular videos is trying to go after those. And so for instance, as I said, there is customers that refuse to have their content on adult platforms and for that, it's very simple. It's a filter for adult platforms, and then everything within there is something that they dislike and don't want there, so they can issue you know, takedown notices. There is other type of customer that wants to monetize the most, and so essentially goes after the content that has the most uh, likelihood of earning them the most money. There are other customers that are trying to see the most uh, innovative stuff that happens to their content. And that means they want to distinguish between the identification because what happens a lot is someone uses content in their own video and that video that they produced is copied all over the place. So it's not that it's, it's essentially a virality through, uh, uh, it's indirect virality, right? Like you as a, as a, uh, musician, let's say you didn't do it. You were just in the video that was used a lot. And so we see this plenty with the big, big artist where they use someone uh, unknown content, and this happens all over the place, uh, where they not necessarily steal. They might have a deal, they might have, you know, this, this must be, this might be a promotion for someone that they really like. Like, this might be very legitimate, and in many cases it is. Uh, what, what becomes the, what becomes the, um, the challenge there is like you, you, you know, for the, for the creator, for the rights holders, like they, they really need to know what they are going after. And so our system tries to adjust to these um, requirements. And uh, 
those are semi-reflected in the design. And as I said, you're doing this for six years. And so by now we saw most of the possible use cases. And so the system is well optimized for all of them. The, the funny thing is, and I think this is just a gut feeling that I had when I was starting this company, I've really focused on, on the first principle. So I've really asked myself, what I think is the end goal for every of our customers and what, what shall I do about it? And this was, uh, or how would I want to see this if I will be in their shoes? And so I tried to put something together and somehow I was semi-right. So we didn't have to change too much over the years. And it uh, seems like to be working, but this is not necessarily the case. And that's why I said we spent three years uh, on the general analytics um, uh, product testing with the larger market just to make sure that we get it right. So does it predict, like when I log in, because it, it sounds like the, the use cases you spelled out there, there's some very concrete and specific ones. So like, for example, you know, let's call it opportunities, right? Monetization opportunities, you know, PEX predicts that the following 10 videos, you know, are going to be the most monetizable in the next week or something like that. Do I have to go and dig for that? Or do you actually like promote that content? And maybe there's another widget that says, you know, here's, here's violations of your use, you know, Playboy TV or whatever is using Disney's you know, Lady in the Tramp or I don't know, <laughs> something like that. Do you like provide that stuff right away or does the user go in and like configure all that stuff themselves or how does that work? Well, we definitely surface uh, the infringements. We, we don't know if this infringement is really an infringement or it's license use like that. We, we don't see into the people's minds and we don't know what they are up to, right? And so if you had a deal, you need to know this yourself. Um, we connect to system uh, on the publisher side to like a sync databases or something similar where we can help them to do these things. We have a lot of tools like whitelists where you can say it's like all of these accounts are licensed by me or my friends or whatever that is. And you don't touch those or there is a lot of tools that are built to help them. But at the end of the day, it's up to the right order or the user of our system to figure these things out. Got it. Got it. So do you, did you feel like it's relatively easy then to figure out like what that experience should be like uh, for the customer or is that an ongoing thing? And like, how do you, how do you, prior, how do you think about it now? Cause it sounds, it sounds like it's kind of like done in a way, like you said, we spent three years on it. Do you see that as an ongoing challenge or how, how do you, how do you see it going forward? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the challenge for us is, uh, right now, um, changing with the part M of the market. And so that's our biggest focus is like the market is changing because the society is now forcing a change on the, all of the UGC platforms. And so we want to be there to facilitate it more. The other thing is uh, what is missing in the general, uh, I will say population is any kind of education around copyright. Most people just don't know what copyright means, uh, what, what the rights are. Like we see people challenging copyright uh, strikes essentially take down notices and others saying it's like this is a public domain because i bought this in uh in a public place right like a lot of people have very hard times figuring out the basic laws and i think there's uh, some education very similar to financial education that had to happen in uh let's call it 80s and 90s where people can distinguish between debit and credit cards and now it's not a big deal right it's like it's something that most population understands very well 
I think this is coming. I think this is the last uh, bastion of of the internet. Like there, we have now ident identity that is uh, exposed. We have now payments that are functional. And the last thing that is missing is attribution. And I think most of us, I will say, eighty to ninety percent of population, eventually will be uh, rights holders of some sorts. Like this is how copyright works. Everybody that produces something is immediately a, a rights owner. But I think. Most of us will eventually generate our livelihood through some form of IP. Uh, once, especially if you believe that the machines are going to take the manual labor from us, um, then the IP is the only thing, only thing that we are left with. And so, there is some form of education that has to occur, and a lot of other things. And things have to settle. You know, it's like uh, there's a quite turbulent times in the copyright right now, and uh, I think the markets are paying a lot of attention to it. And so for us as a company, we just want to be in the middle of it. We want to facilitate it as much as possible. And we want to expand those markets. So I uh, told all my employees that uh, the, the, the goal, the vision for this company is that 20, 20 years from now, nobody will ever even think about copyright. It will be the same thing as when you go to Amazon and you pay online with your credit card. You don't think about it. 20 years ago, people were laughing at Amazon saying, it's like, who the hell is going to pay you? over the internet, right? And so we definitely hope that this is going to be the, the massive change in the society, but there's a pretty long way to go. And so that's why I'm talking about 20 years rather than next week. Yeah, I find it, I mean, I'm an artist and it's, it's, it's very complicated, even if you just focus on like music and audio, right? Just masters and, and songs, then you get into video, right? And then you get into mashups and like, it's crazy and the stand there's not standards for everything and you have international law and yet the you know the web that has no boundaries no borders right so it's <laughs> it's a it's a mess you know we unfortunately we all still need lawyers some of the time for certain things but um it can get in the way sometimes of the creativity but hope, hopefully it'll get better so um Cool. It's been a great chat. I'm, I'm curious, do, do you have, you know, our, our audience tends to be, you know, people that are in leadership positions of, of data products, decision support applications, analytics solutions. You know, you're sitting on a huge pile of data, recordings, audio and video, and, and you've turned that into a successful business. Do you have any advice for, for leaders trying to, to do the same thing? They're trying to, to manage large data sets and turn that into useful insight uh, for for their users, how do you, how do they do that? Or do you have some closing advice for them? I uh, always start with the first principle. What is the goal that someone is trying to achieve? So every data that, that's the problem of this world. There's too much data. When people ask me, is like, how is it to run a big data company? I always tell them, it's like, I wish we would not be, because I would much rather have a small data and a and a very good business than a big data because big data with big data comes not only just a lot of work but also a lot of responsibility especially when you have data on uh usages and other things because that is uh, touching privacy uh which we fortunately don't but the first principles always work right what is the task that i'm uh trying to achieve or the customer is trying to achieve where can i help and so I learned to th learn the basic, let's say, wisdoms, right? Like there's only two reasons why people act on something, fear or greed. And so they can be always translated in people will pay you only because of one of the two things. You make them more money or you save them money. Either way is good. Obviously, making more money is always better. And so 
that's the first principle that you start with, like how can my data be, can be helpful to whoever the recipient is, and then zeroing down. So one of our biggest challenges as a company is our technology can be used in myriads of ways. Uh, we, over the last six years, got asked by hundreds of organizations to work with them from identification of, uh, of radios uh, within cars. So essentially, car manufacturers wanted to have our technology to identify what people are listening to. Uh, TV, TV manufacturers wanted to put this on the TV, uh, TV set-up boxes and stuff like that. And you go, you know, many technologies can be used in many ways. We decided that we have a certain goal, we have certain vision for, for the company, and we mapped the path how to get to the vision. Regardless if it's going to be successful or not, this is what we want. This is who we are as a people. These are the moral values and standards that we have. And as we were gaining traction with the, with the technology and with the company and with the products, we stayed focused. So now every day, one of my employees will show up with some new opportunity that someone else uh, is talking about that there is a new hot industry, there is a new something happening, maybe we can help. Of course we can help, but it's a distraction. So staying focused and delivering everything on the first principle keeps you in the business. And so one of the interesting things as we are heading into a quite massive recession is that our business, because it produces or generates more money for our customer, uh, is quite safe. But what we have gone in any other direction in the past, and there were a lot of directions that were more lucrative, we will not be able to survive this. And so there is a very, very important value in staying focused and, um, and really, really starting from the first principle of the customer. So what the customer wants, what the customer needs, and how can I fulfill the need? And uh, funny enough, like there is no marketing for our company. We barely talk publicly and uh, if you really truly believe in the fact that if you build it and it's valuable, they will come. And it took very long time for us to fulfill that, but it worked. Well, congratulations on your success. And, and uh, it's good to know there's a, a company like yours that's, that's helping artists and, and publishers uh, out there monetize their content and, and get paid for doing their art. So so thank you for that. And thanks for sharing all these great ideas. Where, where can people follow you? Websites, Twitter, social media? How, how, what's the best way to get in touch if they wanted to check your stuff out? Yeah, I'm only active on Twitter. The rest social media is not for me. Uh, on Twitter, I am S-Y-N-O-P-S-I, Synopsy. Um, otherwise, our domain is pex.com. Um, and that's kind of it. Awesome. <clears throat> Well, Rasti, thank you so much. We've uh, been talking to Rasti Turek, the CEO of PEX, a multimedia analytics and rights management platform. Uh, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data and uh, best of luck. Thank you very much, Brian. All right, cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.